you will, open your Bibles to Isaiah. In just a moment, we're going to read a chapter from that inspired book of our Creator, Isaiah. It is good to be with you tonight. It's good to see you all out this evening. It's always a blessing to be with God's people as we journey along life's road. And particularly in the times that we have shared this year, the challenges and the difficulties, the burdens, how important how blessed we are to have each other and to have moments like this. We can come together in assemblies and to see one another, encourage one another, and join our hearts and our voices to God. God called the Israelites out of Egypt, and then he led them to Mount Sinai. And it is there that God a covenant that would make them into a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, they proved to be a very stubborn people, though. A rebellious nation. God had promised them that he would have blessed them abundantly. And that if they indeed obeyed his voice, if they kept his covenants, you know, he would abound upon them innumerable blessings. But instead, they proved to be a generation upon generation of disobedient children. And disobedient the very God that delivered them not only from Egypt, but also delivered them time and time again out of other captivities, other distresses, other burdens. And all along the way, they proved to be a spiritually and morally deteriorated people and in a sense, even though God had called them out and God had chosen them, in a sense, they really ended up being no different from the unchosen nations of the world. Now, Isaiah was God's servant. Isaiah was God's prophet to his people. And if you open the book in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, we see the time frame that Isaiah lived and did the work that God called him to do. And we're told there that it is in the days of certain kings of Judah that he carried out this mission. And it begins with Uzziah and then Jotham and Ahaz and ends with Hezekiah. And the message of Isaiah was mainly concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And the fact was that it was a message filled with God's Judgments, the judgment of God's wrath that had come upon them because of their disobedience, because of their immorality, because of their waywardness. God is going to bring upon him upon them his wrath, a righteous wrath, and it would be a just due for their actions. And sadly, Judah unfortunately was following the sins of her sister Israel, who also was going to be judged. And actually, their downfall occurred during the lifetime of the prophet Isaiah. And so Isaiah warned them about God's judgments because of their sins, and therefore the Babylonians, the Babylon Empire, nation, would come and be God's executioner of righteousness. 
Now that's, that's in, in a gist what Isaiah is about. God's judgment, and yet it is a message from God. Where I want to focus tonight is really chapter 6. And so we're not going to focus so much on the message of Isaiah, but rather we look at one chapter where you find a man who found himself in the awesome presence of God. And that's where I want us to take it a moment this evening and just talk a little bit about what that should be, what our reaction should be when we come face to face in the presence of God. So we'll have your Bible open Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to take this moment and we're going to read the entire chapter. It's not that long, but we're going to read all 13 verses of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go, tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes. Hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, "How, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet... There will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So here we have, as we recognize and recall, that it is God's call to Isaiah 
to become his prophet to his people. But let us kind of just set a little bit of, of perhaps the, the background setting of this chapter as when you think about the historical backdrop when Isaiah gets this call. When Isaiah sees the Lord, he says there in verse 1, in the, in, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. So, so you think about that. Here he is in, 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 at the end of Isaiah's life, at the end of Isaiah's reign, he sees the Lord sitting on his throne. And so, so what does that mean historically? Well, it is estimated that may mean that was, was would have been around the year 739 BC. And Isaiah was a good king. You know, he was a good king you know, for most of his lifetime, for most of his reign. He did what was right in God's eyes. He was a good king overall. Now, near the end, near the end, as we read there in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, pride kind of lifted him up. Pride filled his heart, and he tried to offer a sacrifice of incense in the temple, and God struck him with leprosy. And so he's a leper for the rest of his reign and for the rest of his, his life. But the scriptures describe him as a, as a king, in spite of that, as a king that was good, that was faithful, that God you know, made him prosper. He, he, through him, God strengthened the nation of, of Judah. And, and they, they had a good time in history. But think about it. Here is a king who began reigning at the age of 16. 16 years old, he became king, and we're told he reigned 52 years. 52 years. That's a long time to be king. And can you imagine, can you imagine, in your lifetime, a president, you know, you know, holding office that long. You know, our system doesn't allow that. The maximum is eight years. But you think about if there's a president that held office for 52 years. And for some of you, you know, that means he was already, you know, reigning when you were born. And so he, he's, he's, the, he's the king when you're your child, he's the king through your teen years, he's a king as you enter into your adult years. And you think about the time frame of that, how long that is. And here you have this one rule that long all uh, for most of your life life. You know, whether you're you know, who's already already ruling when you're born, or maybe you're born and then you began ruling. Either way, 52 years. When the span of man is 70 years, and if you do really good, maybe 80. And 52 of that is under the leadership of King Uzziah. So that's the backdrop when God calls Isaiah to be his prophet. There's been, for the most part, 52 really good years for Judah. But what this chapter is about is not about King Uzziah, is it? It's not about Uzziah. It's about God. And so it simply says, in the year that the king died, I saw the Lord. 
And I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. The Lord sits, and the Lord continues to sit on his throne. And so, yes, kings may, may reign 52 years, but what happens? They die. But God doesn't. God sits forever on his throne. God is eternal. And that's who Isaiah sees. And as the Spirit directs you know, you know, Isaiah to record this vision, what is described to us here is the majesty, the glory of the Lord on his throne. And what we need to realize, this is not a description of God. He's not telling what color God's hair is, or the color of his eyes, or how tall, or how, how, you know, none of that. It is not describing us the appearance of the Father. It is not describing us the form of our Creator. It is describing to us the throne scene. He's describing to us the majesty of God, the glory of God, as he sits on the throne. We don't know what he looks like. We don't know what the Father looks like. What we, what we see through Isaiah's eyes here, and I, Isaiah's we see what he experienced. And in seeing the true king of Israel, not, not Isaiah, not, yeah, not yeah, Ahaz, not Hezekiah, none of the kings that served as king during Isaiah's lifetime. That's, you know, that's what was not being talked about. It's talking about how here is God on a throne. And what is the throne like? This throne is, is a high throne. It is, it is an exalted throne. It is a throne that is lifted up in glory and majesty and stateliness. And as you read this chapter, it should make you cross-reference in your mind to what you know Revelation 4 describes. In a very similar picture. You see God on a throne in glory and majesty. What's the point when you read Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4? God is sitting on the throne. And he's still there. Today, right now, God is on his throne. A throne that is majestic, exalted, and lifted high above the seraphim, as we say. And then he says, okay, here's, here's, okay, he's on this throne, and, and he says, okay, let me tell you about what he's wearing. And all you know is he has this robe, and the train of the robe <laughs> fills the temple. You know, that's the only thing we're told about what he's wearing. He's wearing this robe, and the train is just filling up the temple of God. Now, we know that, you know, the garments of the king portrayed a number of things. It can portray grandeur. It can portray distinction. It can, it can portray power. And we know generally, you know, you know from a worldly standpoint, you know, you know, the more beautiful, the more expensive, the, more, you know, the bigger it is, the longer it is, the more grand the king is. But what about God's train? God's train fills the temple. Well, where is God's temple? It's heaven. God fills his temple. The majesty and the power and the glory of God fills his temple. And so the point is, this king, the Lord our God, the God of Isaiah and the God of David Bunting, 
It is a God whose glory and majesty fills his dwelling place. And there is no king on earth, and there is no ruler on earth, there is no emperor on earth, there is no monarch or dictator whoever, there is no one on earth who can compare in his beauty, nor in his power. There is none like him. He is We should stand in awe of him. That should be our reaction. The awe that fills us when we contemplate the scene of Isaiah 6 or the scene of Revelation 4 and God on the throne is described there in all his glory and majesty that depicts not just the physical universe, but all that there is. And what's also described to us here as we read our chapter is you've got the seraphim praising him. And so who are the seraphim? Well, we really don't know. But you know, it, it, it is believed that they are some order, perhaps a high order of angelic beings, heavenly beings, who serve in the presence of God, who serve at God's side. This is the only place that the word seraphim is used. Now there's another word that you know, seems to describe very similar beings, and that's the word cherubim. Likewise, some kind of angelic being who serve the king, the true king, the king of the universe. And what they're doing here is they are worshiping him. They are communicating, they're expressing words of adoration. And they do so not only with their words, but also with their posture. And it says, these beings have six wings. And two, with two of their wings, they cover their face. With two of their wings, they cover their feet. And with two of their wings, they fly. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a number of suggestions that you, know, you can consider. But perhaps what that suggests is the covering of the face is the showing of reverence. The covering of their feet is showing you know, their humility and the covering and, and the flying of their wings is their willingness and their readiness to carry out God's will. Always. Do, to do what the king bids them to do. And so they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so what they do is they basically supremely set the king apart from anything or anyone else. There's none like him. And rightfully so. In all of the universe, in all those created by God, and all those made in the image of their creator should do the same. That we should express words of adoration and communicate the grandness, the grandeur of our God, of our King, of our Lord, of our creator. For example, Psalm 19, when talking about creation itself, speaks of the handiwork of God and how the word goes forth throughout the universe, praising God. So creation does it, the seraphim do it, and so should we. 
But what's the effect of this? When all of creation, when those in the spiritual realm truly show proper reverence, humility, and adoration to the true and living God, what's the effect of that? Well, Isaiah says, as he envisioned this scene, God on his throne, being praised by the seraphim, he says, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out when the temple was filling the smoke. Things trembled. And that's a common symbol. If you recall, back in 1 Kings chapter 8, you have the temple is completed in Jerusalem. And the temple is being dedicated to God. And so there is King Solomon, all leading in the great celebration of the temple being completed and the service you know, to be rendered there by the priesthood. And, it's, and in similar language, it talks about you know, the earthquaking and the smoke filling the temple, which are symbols of divine presence, power, power beyond what we can imagine. And so what is Isaiah's reaction? Here's a man who's given the privilege and the blessing and the opportunity to find himself in the presence of God. So how does he react? Well, he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed, you know, by not only what he sees, but also, you know, the reflection of himself in that grandeur. And what we find here is the recognition and the admittance and the confession that there truly is a great gulf that exists between God's holiness and man's character. There's a great gulf there. God is light, 1 John 1.5. And there is no darkness at all in him. Not even a smidgen of it. There's nothing about him that is dark, sinful, evil, wicked, corrupt. He is light embodied. And so in that presence, what's exposed? What's, what becomes so apparent about ourselves? Our frailties, our weaknesses, our sins. <laughs> And that's, what, how, that's how Isaiah feels when he is granted this unique privilege. Not all prophets saw what Isaiah saw. But Isaiah was given this glimpse. And when he saw this and he experienced this, he woes me. I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people. Of so what's he basically saying? He says, woe is me, I'm a sinner. And I live among sinners. I'm ruined. Because I have seen the grandeur and the majesty of one who is holy, holy, holy. Any, when any man stands in the presence of the true king, there is no question where holiness resides. 
and where sin is practiced. And there is this deep consciousness of Isaiah, of his own unworthiness, of his own guiltiness as a sinner. And Isaiah wasn't a bad guy. But in the presence of God, he saw his true self. The holiness of God is a mirror of his inadequacies, of his shortcomings, of his own transgressions. And so Isaiah is feeling this in a very deep manner. He is moved in a, in a, in a huge way. And I think you, you see other men of, men of faith who have not the exact experience as this, but are in a sense... In the presence of, of God, in the presence of greatness, in the presence of holiness, and likewise in that presence, there is a deep consciousness of who they are. Take Job, Job chapter 42. Job 42 in the ver first six verses there. When you have uh, God after having kind of challenged him in regard to Job's, uh, uh, his, his, you know, request of God. It is then that you know, you know, God you know, you know, you know, speaks to him, and then you have Job's response to that in the forty-second chapter. You know, and he answers you know, God and says, "I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted." Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? God has that. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. God, you know, Job has said a lot. And Job was not any dummy. Job was a smart man of faith. He was knowledgeable. He was, there was wisdom with him. But in the presence of God, he's fully aware. He's made known what he did not know. Things do wonderful me which I did not know, he says. Hear now, and I will speak, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. That's what God said. And what does Job now say? I've heard you. I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He sees God. And he sees God in a way that he hadn't seen God before. And how does he feel? Like Isaiah, he says, I retract and I repent. It's just and ashes. When we, are, when we truly put ourselves in the presence of our King, in the presence of God, and we see his grandeur, we see his majesty, we see his holiness, one of the things that should take place is that we see ourselves truly. What we are without God. Peter, in a similar way, Peter, chapter 5, verse 8. It's, it's the occasion when he's fished all night, comes back, Jesus says, put the net back out. He's a little bit hesitant, but does what Jesus says, of course. And then there's this catch of fish that you know, they need to call, you know, call his co workers and hey, you need to come help. We can't pull this in. There's so many. And so after Peter experiences 
that with Jesus. Remember what he says there, verse 8? He comes, he, he, he approaches the Lord, and he says, Go away from me. I'm a sinner. What did he see? He saw the presence of God and all the grandeur and his majesty and his power and his holiness. And it made Peter see himself in a way that he didn't want to see. But he needed to see. Every one of us need to go through that. Every one of us needs to see ourselves for who we are, what we are, in the presence of holiness, God's holiness. Now one day we're all going to stand before the, before the king in judgment. And, we will, and all men, even unbelievers, will stand before the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself, and they will confess him to be Lord. <laughs> they will do it. And they will bow before him. Why? Because they will truly be in the presence of the king, literally. But we need to put ourselves in that presence before that day. And we need to be overwhelmed by God's greatness. And we need to be alarmed by our own sinfulness. And we need to feel the sense of how we are ruined. We, are, we, we will perish in sin. But the beauty of this passage is not only to see God's glory, to see the effect of seeing God's glory upon Isaiah, but to see what God does for Isaiah. Isaiah says, I'm ruined. You know, here I am a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips because I've seen the King. I've seen the Lord of hosts. I have seen the one who is unapproachable. I've seen the one who cannot be seen. The invisible God. But then one of the seraphim flies to him, having carrying with him a burning coal from the altar, carrying this coal with tongs. The, seraph, the seraphim is not carrying, he's not holding that, that coal in his hand. The seraphim is carrying that coal with tongs. And he takes the coal and he purges the lips of Isaiah. Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, your sins are forgiven. What's, what's happening here? God provides the cleansing. God provides the forgiveness. Isaiah could not forgive himself. He can't remove the uncleanness of his lips himself. He can't change that himself. But God can. You know, man by himself is in no condition to seek God's forgiveness until he recognizes his due. And that's what Isaiah does. In verse, verse 5, upon experiencing the greatness of, see, of seeing God and being in that presence, and then, woe is me, I'm ruined because I'm a sinner. And so here he, he sees his true self, and is then this one is ready to receive the cleansing. Until we see what we are and who we are, 
really, then we're not ready for the cleansing of God. Because we see ourselves as someone that's good. We see ourselves as someone that's worthy. We see ourselves as someone that's good enough. But we're not. We're not. And the point is, whatever separated Isaiah from God, God removed his way. And God does that for us as well. God has provided the righteous requirement for our sins, and that's Jesus. Mark 10, 45, Jesus' life is a ransom for you. Jesus' life is the ransom for your life. Satan kidnaps us through deception, and he holds us. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay to free us of the bondage of Satan and sin. And that's Jesus. Jesus was sent from above. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what did He do? He sacrificed Himself. He became the propitiation. He became the atonement. And so like Paul writes you know, in Romans 3 and elsewhere as well, as all of the you know, New Testament points out, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Now apart from the law, righteousness of God is manifested, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, verse 22, for all those who believe, for all of sin, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption was in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as propitiation in His blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate God's righteousness. God provides the way. And it's His Son. You can be made clean. I can be made clean. We can be forgiven. Because God is merciful. God is gracious. And God has provided the means by which we can be purged. With the uncleanness of our lips and the uncleanness of our lives can be removed because of Jesus Christ. And as a result then, you go back to Isaiah 6 now. And so now you've got a cleansed Isaiah. You have a forgiven Isaiah. You have a sanctified Isaiah. And God now offers an opportunity. And he says, verse 8, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? God offers here an invitation to Isaiah. But he doesn't make Isaiah do it. He offers it to Isaiah, but doesn't force Isaiah. And you think God has always been that way with his people and with his creation. God does not force people to serve him. He loves us. 
He grieves over us. He provides the way that we can be cleansed, but he does not force any one of us to serve him. He invites us. He invites us to accept the invitation. He invites us to accept the challenges. He invites us to accept the, the responsibilities to do his work. Take, for example, the days of Joshua. At the end of, of the book, Joshua 24, when Joshua, God's leader, you know, challenges you know, the people that you need to choose whom you will serve today. And as for me and my house, we're going to serve God, but you have to choose for yourself. God has given us this land. God has blessed us. You know, there is more work to be done, but you have to decide who you're going to serve. Or take... The invitation of Jesus in Matthew 11, that familiar text, when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. It's an invitation. Or even the very last book, in the last chapter of that book, in Revelation 22, verse 17, where you've got the Spirit and the Bride calling out, saying, Come, come to me, all those who thirst, come. And so here in Isaiah chapter 6, here you've got Isaiah experiencing the blessed opportunity to be in the presence of God and yet that being an overwhelming experience because it shows his true unworthiness, his true sinfulness, and yet God provides the way for him to be cleansed. And so God now says, who can I send? Who will go out and do my bidding now? And Isaiah says, as you know, here am I, send me. Where is that coming from? Where does the willingness to go and willing to serve, where, where does that grow out of? That grows out of a heart that understands the responsibility to show your gratitude for a gift you will never pay back. That's where that comes from. Isaiah had no clue. He had no clue what the job was. And it wasn't going to be easy. It wasn't going to be easy. It all going to be really hard and unpleasant. But yet here's a man who has seen God in his glory, seen his holiness, and has seen himself and yet has been mercifully purged from that uncleanness and God says, okay, who will go and do my bidding? And Isaiah says, I will. I will go. Why? Because of his gratitude. Because of his thankfulness to know I have seen the Lord and I did not perish. But I was cleansed. And you have a man now who's who displays confidence and zeal for a commission, a commission that he has no idea what it, what will in, what it will entail. And yet, it is God who's qualified him for, for this job. God is the one who is, who's qualified Isaiah to be able to do this mission, to carry out this bidding, to do God's will. And he, so he approaches this with confidence and with zeal because I've seen the Lord, I have not perished, and here I am cleansed. 
Paul had the same heart too. He had the same mindedness like Isaiah. Recall in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 and verse you know, through verse 15, you have Paul talking about a bit about his past. And he, verse 12, he says, I thank Christ who strengthened me, considered me faithful, to put me into service. He said, Lord, I thank you that you allowed me to serve you the way I served you. And you know what Paul's life was like. It was no bed of roses. It was harsh, hard, and difficult. And his life was at risk at every turn. And yet here he is, a man who thanks Christ to put me into service. Why? Verse 13. Because I remember what I was. Verse 13. I, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor. That's what I was. I was a man of unclean lips, living in the midst of a people of, of, of unclean, unclean lips as well. He says, and yet I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. God provided the way. And in a sense, the seraphim brought that coal from the altar of God with tongs and touched Paul's life with Jesus. Jesus. And he goes on to say, And the grace of our Lord is more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And he says, It's a trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. How did Paul still see himself? Now, he was not a man who was walking in darkness, pursuing sin, fulfilling the desire of the flesh. You know, that he wasn't living that life. He was walking by faith in godliness, righteousness, and he lived the new creation. And yet, he sees himself still what he is when I'm in the presence of Christ. When I'm in the presence of my Father. Those who are holy, holy, holy. What am I? I'm a sinner. Cleansed by mercy. And so, Isaiah, what's Isaiah's task? Isaiah's task is to take that message that God's going to give him. And like I, I started off, it's a message predominantly about God's wrath. That's going to be poured out on God's people. Because they are disobedient. They are evil. And they're committing all, all kinds of abominations. And so they're ripe for the harvest. Of God's judgment. So it was not going to be a pretty message. And so he says, you know, I, I need you to go and I need you to tell the people what they need to hear. And he says, you're, you're going to go preach to people and they are not going to understand. And you're going to 
preach to people and they're in audiences that they're going to be stubborn. And as you preach to them, he says they're going to get more stubborn. They're going to get more calloused because of the message you're preached. And so he said, well, how, how long do we need to do this? As long as it takes. Do it and you keep on doing it, Isaiah, until the land becomes desolate. Until... There is only a small remnant of hope that remains. Isaiah, yes, lived during some reigns of kings that were pretty good. But he was alive when Samaria fell at the hands of the cruel Assyrians and carried off the slaves. He was alive when those Assyrians surrounded the city of Jerusalem. I mean, excuse me, the Babylonians. No, Assyrians. 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 Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem and closed them up like a bird in a cage. And God spared Jerusalem on that occasion. He was there. And Isaiah's task was to preach God's message no matter what. Preach it in season, preach it out of season, do so with long-suffering, reproving, rebuking, teaching, with instruction. Do it until your job is done. And Isaiah had no clue what that would entail. But in chapter 6, he's ready, he's willing, he's eager, and he's determined. To serve his God. Because he was. He was ruined. Until he was cleansed. And so he went. Tradition tells us. That he was sown into. By his own people. What thanks. What appreciation that was. From your peers. But he was faithful to his God. And he did what his God said because he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord sitting on his throne. It was glorious. It was majestic. And it was holy. God is still there. That glory, that power, that beauty, that majesty has not diminished one iota. He is still dwelling in all that grandeur and the robe of his train still is filling the temple. And the heavenly hosts are still praising him. With wings covering their eyes, covering their feet, and carrying out the mission that they're sent to carry. God so loved the world that he sent his son into this world, yes, to die on a cross for our sins so that he may save us, but also he was sent into this world so that we may see the Lord. When the, world, when, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, what did they behold? They, they, they beheld the glory of the Father. 
that's what we need to see. We open the pages of God's inspired word that we see God. We see Jesus. And we see glory. And the kind of glory and majesty and holiness that reflects our waywardness. And yet, understanding in faith the beauty and the power and the blessing it is to be cleansed by God's Son. The Lamb of God. Which Lamb? Yes. But now stands worthy to be your King and ours. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to think about your soul, your condition before God. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. Outside of Christ, we are ruined. And we will perish if we do not repent. But God has provided a way that you can be cleansed. Your, your sins can be washed away. God's grace and your faith. We can assist you in confessing your faith with your mouth before men and repent of your sins and be baptized in Christ. We want to invite your courage to do that tonight. Allow us to celebrate that beginning in your life with you. But if you're a Christian and there may be some sin in your life that you've not mended, that you've not made right with your Father, if we can pray with you and assist you in that, encourage you to make your wishes known while we stand and sing the song that's been selected.